Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Just start laughing. Just start <laughs> laughing. Well, you said a four-letter word before we even started, which made me laugh. But I was looking at our podcast on on iTunes or whatever, on one of the Apple feeds, and I noticed that we had a couple of not five-star reviews. So I went to search and see what that was about. And one of them gave us a raving review. She loves the podcast. And um, she gave us three stars because we use foul language. <laughs> some people don't like that and uh it's true sometimes we say bad words because you know sometimes the state of the world deserves a four-letter word yeah you know it's kind of interesting that that that's how we you know your ratings get lowered um you know some people don't like women some people don't like men Okay, they, I, I don't think they should be giving us three stars <laughs> because <laughs> you're a woman and I'm a man. Uh, but yeah, on the other hand, we can't, you know, we can't please everybody. We are who we are. That's uh, right. The reason I used a four letter word is because I have to use glasses to see far. I have to use glasses to see close <laughs> until I get this com thing completely finished. Um, but I have recovered as probably as good as I'm going to recover. Uh, from my second surgery. So that's great if people are interested in that. And then I will have to have a cataract surgery down the road. But what does that have to do with birthing instincts? <laughs> it, we are birthing instincts. So there you go. And if, and if we're not able to function or we're dead, <laughs> we, can't, we can't record the podcast. So well, this podcast is this podcast has started sort of gloomy, <laughs> even though we're both laughing hysterically. Uh, well, the the interesting thing about this, this is one of my uh, favorite people is going to be on today, Sarah Wickham. Me? Well, you. Second, <laughs> my second favorite person. No. Yeah, Sarah uh, Wickham. Dr. Sarah Wickham, a uh, prolific author, is going to be on with uh, us today. So, uh, but first, before we get to her, uh, where are you now? I am in Eureka, California. So I went from Utah to Idaho, Idaho, um, to uh, to Oregon, um, and then back to the tip top of Northern California. And I stopped in Mount Shasta and I thought of you because you, some of our listeners may not know this, you um, are really interested in UFOs and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of sightings there in um, Mount Shasta. There's some really interesting theories of uh, strange going ons in Mount Shasta. So I thought about you. And now I'm visiting my mom, um, who, you know, is going to be 80 this year and has been dealing with some health issues. And so, uh, you know, because of being on call, those of us that have the on call life, they understand it's really hard to get out of town. And so it's nice to spend some real quality time with her. I haven't done that in many years. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Well, when you were here sitting in the rocking chairs at the homestead, we saw two UFOs. Don't oh, you yeah. remember? 
I do remember. We did. We saw two lights and then they were gone. <laughs> yeah, you were like, that had to be a UFO. <laughs> you know, they don't call them UFOs anymore. They call them something else now. Well, I'm old. Un so. Unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAPs, I think they call them. I did not know that. I learned something new today. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, they always have to change things. This is part of we We always they change the language, but I'm trying to figure out the benefit of changing that language. And I quite, can't quite figure that out. So I had my annual uh, poker trip to Las Vegas in the World Series. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Did you win? I did not win. I did not even oh. come close to winning, but <laughs> I still had fun. I mean, I, I played in three separate tournaments, didn't make it out of the first day in any of them. But, uh, you know, made some great memories. You know, a lot of kvetching. For those of the people don't know what kvetching means, it means complaining uh, because you have bad beats or you do something really stupid and then you go back. And I go with my buddy Lex, who's been my childhood since, since fourth grade when he moved to my neighborhood. He's sort of been my, one of my best friends there. And we go every year. And, you know, we, commit, we always say, I hope I don't see you for dinner. Because if we're if we're still playing, then we miss dinner. And every night that we were there, we had dinner together. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so one of my least successful trips, but still a, a tradition that I really love doing. And Vegas yeah. is so close to me now; it's just an easy drive. So I, I love going there. Yeah, like two hours. Uh, almost three, but yeah. still, that's still right. easy for me. It's mm -hmm. it's like two podcasts. You know, I, I'm listening. <laughs> right. I listen. You no, know, I usually listen to Del Big. This time, what I listened to was the uh, Joe Rogan uh, RFK podcast because it was exactly three hours long, and it was a perfect. I listened to the, from the start to the finish on my drive, and it was perfect. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's two podcasts, unless it's Joe Rogan. <laughs> it's <Okay>. it's one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we better get going because uh, okay. because I'm you know I'm really looking forward to the interview. You yes. want to you want to say something about that? Oh, that I was not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, we had some Wi-Fi challenges here because my mom is a little dealing with a little bit of dementia. And so she just couldn't figure out how to get me on the Wi-Fi. But I figured it, I finally figured it out with my son's help, who's an IT guy. So unfortunately, we we scheduled this way in advance and I was really looking forward to meeting Sarah and the conversation. But I encouraged you to the show must go on. And so you did the interview without me. And um, so I'm going to be listening fresh with everyone else. Yeah. And it, it, Sarah's got such a busy schedule that would, trying to reschedule with her would have been almost impossible. Yeah. Uh, she is very smart and very clever. And she has that British accent, which I love. So uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy the conversation. But before we get to that, I just want to acknowledge two people. I want to acknowledge at, hang on, my glasses again. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, there goes a two-star. Now we got two-star rating. Uh, at Meadowlark Birth for writing her story. She wrote wrote me and Goddess Bliss a really long story. We're not going to read it on the on the podcast. A lot of you have been writing us stories, some of them quite long, and we and I love them. But when they're that long and stuff, we really can't do them on a podcast. So I just want to acknowledge her for her sincerity and her emotions that she was willing to share with Bliss and I. So thank you, Kathy, for that. And then I got a picture from Melissa on Instagram, which I just thought was appropriate for our podcast. This is from Austin Health Partners. 
And it is, I think they're a pediatric group in Austin. I think this is a group that maybe there's been something in the news about how they, they won't take children from home birth or they, they won't take you if you're not vaccinated or whatever. And, and I would tell people to run away from this group as fast as possible. I don't know if they, I don't want to be inaccurate. So I'm just saying that I think it's the same group. But she shows me, she took a picture of the health history form and it says health history, vaccinations. No vaccines are listed in your record. Allergies, no known allergies. Problems. Home birth on June 14th, 23. That's what they listed as a problem. That's the only yeah. problem on the problem list is that she had a home birth <laughs> last week. So yeah, run from wow. yeah, I just and she and she wrote ugh, pediatricians, <laughs> she wrote. So I just want to acknowledge that because the idea that medical model is is swinging further and further off-center by suggesting that people who choose to give birth in a different in a way that they don't like is a problem. That's a that's a that's a scary thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. It, it's lovely to see you. I'll see you after. And uh for now I hope that all of our fellow travelers get some joy as well as some real good information uh with my interview with Sarah Wickham. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. 70% um, of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. This is needed.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at this is needed.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Today I have a special guest. Uh, her name is Dr. Sarah Wickham. You may all, some of you may know of her. She's a prolific uh, writer. She's a long career as an independent midwife, a midwifery educator and researcher. She's a PhD and a holistic heart-centered approach to birth, which is an interesting combination, which she'll, I'm sure, get into today. Uh, she is now a best-selling author whose books have been 
praised as, quote, well-researched, well-written, and well-argued, and I would agree with that on a personal level. Excellent and important and a valuable asset for any woman who wants solid information based on good evidence. Sarah combines her experience in midwifery, education, and research to translate complex scientific and medical evidence into trustworthy, readable, evidence-based books that help women and families make the decisions that are right for them. She lives in Wiltshire, England with her husband, an uncouth black cat called Mittens, and a large volume of knitting wool. So in a matter of a second or so, welcome Sarah Wickham. Welcome, Sarah. It's so Thank good to much. see. It's so good to see you. And it's in person for real. I, I just I love talking to people in general, but especially Brits. So it's oh, fabulous. always fabulous. That's great. Fabulous. See, nobody in America would say fabulous. It's just it's a <laughs> it's a British thing. And I just really end fabulous, you know, all those words that you guys use. It's just lovely to have you here. Uh, I guess my first question to break the ice would be: how's Mittens doing? Mittens is fine. Mittens has currently been shut out of the room, but I can't guarantee that he won't put in an appearance because he does love podcasts. So okay. let's, let's hope he doesn't rock up halfway through. Yeah, he's that's been okay. Given, it's dinner time here. I know it's morning for you and it's dinner time here and he's been given extra dinner in the hope he'll stay away. <laughs> and my cat is right at my feet. I, brilliant. I have somebody upstairs working on something and she's a coward, so she's with me. But let's, <laughs> let's you know what, you and I have been sending some emails back and forth. And yeah. we could go in a zillion different directions. You've written so many books, several of which I've read. They've been very helpful for me in my journey. Before we start talking specifically about where we want to head today, which is talking about the word risk versus the word prevention or prophylaxis and, the, and how, how, how those words can get you into trouble. Can you tell, tell my listeners, some of whom probably don't know who you are, how you became so prolific in your journey? Just, just give them some insight. Okay, so I graduated as a midwife here in the UK about 30 years ago. And at that time in the UK, that meant having completed a four-year honours degree at university. I had actually, just as this, I'd originally intended to do medicine. And fairly early on, I went, this is not, these are not my people. <laughs> and so what that meant for me was that I had what you would call pre-med. I had a background in science and maths and statistics. And, and as part of my degree programme in midwifery, we were studying evidence. This was really the beginning of the era of evidence-based medicine and evidence-based midwifery. And, and it made me very happy because I, I loved maths and statistics. And, and I was among the people who felt that we could really use this evidence to address and challenge some of what was happening in the maternity services. Either wasn't informed by evidence or it was causing iatrogenic harm or was just plain disrespectful. And then after I graduated, I became an independent midwife and, and I mostly attended home births. And, and that was an amazing grounding for me. And, and in many ways, what I do now is rooted in the fact that the women I was looking after kept asking me questions that I didn't know the answers to. And I would say, well, I don't know that, but I will go to the library and look it up. And of course, these were in the days where we had to actually go to the library, you know, and, and look things up in, in journals and papers. Um, and, and what I learned from my research, sometimes I would find the answers for them, but sometimes I couldn't. And an anti-D is a really good example of this, of Rogam, which I know you talked about my book on the podcast a, a few months ago, where what I discovered was that 
the main reason that nobody knew the answers to the questions that women and families were asking me was they weren't asking the right questions. That the medical model, the you know, the obstetric paradigm was so narrow, nobody was thinking outside the box. And as soon as anybody found something that, oh, this works if we give it to everybody, nobody was saying actually only a very small proportion of women or babies or whoever needs this. So so there I was with my maths brain and my midwife heart. And, you know, I can't sit here now and tell you that I made a conscious decision all that while ago to say, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to try and be a bridge between those things. But when I look at my career in retrospect, that's absolutely what happened. So I have spent my career, I practiced for, for a good while. I've worked in midwifery education and research and publishing. I've edited journals, but all, all the way through, I've been looking at these topics, these questions, you know, Rogam anti-D, vitamin K, group B strep. My master's and my PhD were both on, my master's was on anti-D and my PhD was on induction. I am passionate about induction of labor and about diving into the research in that. And, and I turned what I found into books along the way. And, and so, yes, I've, I've now been an author and speaker and researcher for about 25 years. I'm about to publish my 18th book, which is on plus size pregnancy, because at the moment, the thing that is really annoying me is higher BMI and birth, which we can get to whatever you like. I, I don't mind. And the thing is that what I've realized so over and over again is that lots of people realize in theory that what they are being told isn't necessarily the whole story or the truth that, you know, do you have the emperor's wearing no clothes story there? Is that so? They know yes, the emperor. Yes, we do. Clothes. Okay, so they know they know the emperor isn't wearing any clothes, or they sense that they feel uncomfortable with what they've been told, or you know they they know there's more to it, but they don't necessarily know how to start unpacking that. And so, my work helps people to understand the statistics and the maths and the actual evidence. And I do that both for women and families and for health professionals as well and birth workers. But also I've done a lot of work on helping people understand why and how the obstetric paradigm is so flawed. You know, I, I describe the landscape and, and then help them get a sense of the wider picture, why some of these notions are problematic. And, and basically, I mean, people just sometimes need a map or a guide. You know, they just need somebody to show them the way through. Everybody needs to make the decisions that are right for them within their context. One of, one of my big frustrations is this idea of standardization and pathways that, you know, we all need to be pushed down the same path because of a risk factor or some physical or, you know, characteristic. And, and that's really inappropriate. No, that, that's not what we all want. Um, yeah, I, I I call that I call that um, you know birth by algorithm and yeah. and you've said so much already. Let me let me stop you for a second. Yes, right. I want you to monologue. It's what my listeners <laughs> want, but I want to I want to say a couple of things. First of all, you said very early on that you didn't you didn't know stuff. People were asking you questions and you didn't know stuff. Yes, and rather than gaslight them, you were confident enough to say I don't know stuff, which. Um, my, our, which our colleagues in the obstetrical world, as you said, are stuck in a box and they don't know stuff, but they don't admit that they don't know stuff. 
you said that you wanted to find evidence to challenge the medical model. And I was thinking to myself, well, how did that work out for you? Because <laughs> they don't listen. Um, well, I don't see I it. Do- I don't see it. My, my world in the United States, we don't see a lot of change. We think I personally see things getting worse. Now, maybe it's because I sit in a little skewed cubicle down here in my office and I read letters all day long from people who have had experiences that are so obviously wrong. And my question is, maybe my question to you is, why don't they wake up like you and I woke up? What what keeps them where they are, in your opinion? I have mine, obviously, and my listeners know that. But tell me a little bit about why you think that what you write sometimes is so obvious. Just take yeah. take the take the twenty eight week Rogam thing for just an example. All right, you know, one in how many people are going to get immunized? But we're going to give it to everybody. But we've never studied it in giving it to everybody. But we're going to do it anyway. So that. And that's what I think you were talking about with so many different things. So, all right, I've said my piece. (laughs) Go go forward. Well, I suppose suppose the one thing I wanted to clarify is that it wasn't my intention to say, hey, I'm just going to single-handedly or, you know, knock over the medical model. I think, you know, medicine is fabulous. Some of my best friends are obstetricians and other doctors. You know, cesarean sections are save people that we wouldn't have saved. And so I'm not anti-intervention for the sake of being anti-intervention but it's about appropriate intervention. And I mean, I think in a nutshell, it's important to look what's happened historically because the obstetric paradigm, and if I may, I'll just clarify, when I talk about the obstetric paradigm, and I know I don't need to tell you this, I'm not talking about all obstetricians because there are obstetricians, so it's about the set of ideas. It's not about you know particular professional or occupational groups, but the obstetric paradigm is a set of ideas that began to arise about 200 years ago. And I realise that your history of this in, the, in, in North America will be different from the UK history. But in the UK, it really came about because of things, you know, situations like the Chamberlain brothers having invented forceps. And once they'd invented forceps, there was money to be made in forceps because they had these, these things, these tools that could help in those very small number of situations where the midwives couldn't, the, you know, the, the midwives couldn't get a, a tiny number of babies out. And so they kept this. It was a very secret thing. They would use them under the sheets. They had this, this knowledge which helped, but they kept it secret. And it was about, it was about money. It was about power. Um, and lots of other things were happening at the same sort of time. So one of the things was happening, we had the industrial and scientific revolutions possibly around and so our ideas about the world were changing and we had groups of people who were thinking we can control the world we can we can dominate nature and so some of those ideas were picked up within you know those who dis- who saw this potential new profession of catching babies the notion of risk also arose in about the late 1700s you know, you, I don't know if you've, if you've read about this in my book, talk about this in a couple of my books. It came about because of insurance, because of boats on the high seas. And this was a risky enterprise. And so insurance companies said, you give us money when your ship goes off. And if you lose your ship or your cargo, we will help you. And this notion of risk is really only a couple of hundred years old. And so some of these ideas have heavily influenced what we call the med- medical model today. 
what I find fascinating, I'm going to stop because I know you want to talk in a minute. What I find fascinating is that the medical model, the obstetric paradigm, is still based on these 200-year-old ideas. And science has moved on from them. I mean, physics does, people, physicists do no longer believe the ideas of classical physics, and yet they are the basis of some of the knowledge of the obstetric paradigm. You know, you look across all social science, everyone has moved on, but obstetrics hasn't. That's fascinating. That's, that's, yeah, I didn't know that that's where insurance came from. I guess I, I've read some of your books, but I don't remember reading that. Uh, yeah, the question of why they haven't moved on is something that you and I aren't going to answer here today. But I do like that talking about risk. And, and you actually have a meme up or with mittens on it, actually, that says, how about changing the word from risk to chance? The yeah. chance of something happening. Because risk, by its very nature, the word implies anxiety and fear and something to be avoided. Absolutely. Um, so I, th- I like that. And then you also talk about risk and prophylaxis, which is trying to prevent something from happening, like taking hydroxychloroquine when you're well so that you don't get COVID. Okay, I'm not going to go there, but I'm just saying that that's <laughs> I don't know about that one <laughs> Or giving somebody antibiotics because they had surgery before they have an infection. That's prophylaxis. Yeah. So it's about preventing problems. But then you, you said something which I was reading and you said something that often leads to greater downstream consequences. You didn't say it exactly that way, but that's the way we talk. Where yeah. when you try to do something to prevent something from happening, you may prevent a small number of those things from happening. But what is the consequence downstream? And that's where I think the OBs that are stuck in the hamster wheel of the medical model don't think downstream. People that listen to me know that when I talk about these things, that one thing I always say is the only thing that matters to the obstetrician. And again, I'm not picking on all obstetricians. I'm more picking on the system that the obstetricians are stuck in. But the only thing that matters is the live baby in the bassinet. Absolutely. And how the baby gets there is not their concern. And what happens to that baby, that mother, and that mother's future babies is not their concern. They just want that baby. To them, if the bassinet or the cot or the goldfish bowl, as we call them, it doesn't even matter if that's in the neonatal intensive care unit. As long as the baby is alive at the end of the day, because sometimes they're not even taking morbidity into account. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, mean, I, I put down some of your topics from some of the books and some of the things that you suggested. But I was like, first of all, I want to talk, I want you to talk about the risk of the word risk and absolute. why prevention isn't always, you know, absolute. Or, and then you talk about a little bit about absolute risk and you call, I call it actual risk. You call it absolute risk versus relative risk. So give us the Sarah Wickham thing about the word risk and prevention. And then we'll get into a couple of specific topics. Okay. Well, so the whole thing with risk is what so many women and families are being told about risk is, is often just plain wrong and inaccurate. And so, you know, there are, so, I mean, if I use sort of BMI and induction as the, as the examples, because they're the ones that are most in my head at the moment. So when I was researching higher BMI, which, you know, as I said, that's the next book. I found that there are there are areas where, yes, there is a slightly higher chance of a problem if you have a higher BMI, but and, and there are about six or seven buts. So just shout if you want to interrupt. So the first but is, but this is the this is where the absolute and relative risk comes in, because but there is a slightly higher chance, but the risk isn't nearly as high as you've probably been led to believe. Because 
often, you know, women, families are told, well, you are twice as likely to have this problem. And so therefore we are recommending insert name of intervention, you know, because this, this, this principle applies across many interventions. You know, well, you know, we know that women who insert risk factor are twice as likely to have a stillborn baby, for example. And so therefore we recommend a, you know, it's so, you know, you you had you you conceived by IVF. We're recommending an induction. You're larger than average, older than average. You know, insert all these risk factors. And so, but when we look at the absolute chance, because as you as you said, my whole point about this, the language is, that we as a culture, and we can't get away from this. We we tend to have this anxiety reaction when we hear words like risk and hemorrhage and some of those scary words. So. One of my suggestions is because if we if we just look at probability and what that means mathematically, risk basically means chance. So as health professionals, we just need to adapt that one word. And instead of saying your risk of this, is we just need to say your chance of this. Because it we're still giving and, this. And you, and you can't just say your chance is high. No, because okay? <laughs> <that's> <laughs> because you ask them what does high mean? Yeah. And they go, oh, it's really high. It's like, well, that's not a definition of what high means. I, I used to do an exercise with, with my midwifery medical students that were studying research, and I would give them a whole load of words on kind of the, the whiteboard at the front, words like high, you know, and say to them, just sit for five minutes and write down a number on that, what that means for you. And then we would look at the range of response. And you can imagine that the range was really large. Yeah, that's exactly true. Risk doesn't mean the same thing to every person. And you said it in a lovely British way, and I, I just love it. Okay. But somebody wrote me this morning about, about she had a classical C-section for her first baby. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, I don't even know that she really did have a classical because a lot of people who do vertical incision will call it a classical. So, But she asked what the risk is. And so if you, if you ask anybody out there, what's the risk of a uterine rupture with a classical C-section? They're going to say, it's really high. But the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine says it's 2%. And in fact, if you look at British data, it's even lower than that. Right. Now, you're not going to have much data on that anymore because no one's Mm. going to do a study or get it through human subjects of allowing women with a classical C-section because hospitals won't allow it. But if the risk is 2%, that's simple math, (laughs) 1 in 50. (laughs) Okay. So 1 in 50 might be really high to some people, but it also is a 98% chance it's not going to happen. Yeah, and nobody's told that. Classical C-section, like breach in the medical model, almost always immediate. Mm-hmm. There are no informed consent. No, I love you. Know, you you think like I do about the term shared decision making, but yes. and you know no con, no discussion about it whatsoever. It's my way or the it's highway. Not shared. It's not. It's not the obstetricians or the midwife's decision. It's not shared. It's the the person whose body is you know going to you know sort of face whatever the consequences are, good or bad. That's the person that makes the decision. It's not, yeah. So I tell me a couple more buts about BMI. Okay, well, the buts about that risk. So lots of women who don't have the risk factor, so whether that's higher BMI or whatever, lots of, you know, so women who have a higher BMI, well, they're told, well, you know, you, you, you've got a higher chance of preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, having a cesarean, all these things. But lots of women who don't have a higher BMI have those problems. And as we've said, lots of women who do don't have a problem. You're, you're far, far more likely to be fine than have a problem, as you said. But healthcare practitioners don't express it that way. There are actually 
some areas where you have an advantage if you have a higher BMI. And, and this kind of has a parallel with, with induction. I mean, when I wrote my, my book, In Your Own Time, about induction, the, I made sure that the very first chapter was about the advantages of spontaneous labour. Because we always hear about the risks of spontaneous labour and the advantages of induction, but we need to turn that on its head because there are significant advantages of going into spontaneous labour. And I'm not saying never have an induction. I'm not saying there is no good reason. Yeah, we know, we know. No? But so all of the measures, maybe we can come back to this, all of the measures which we use to reduce risk have downsides. But I think one of the really key things for me, with, with BMI in particular, is that there are some situations where you clearly have a higher chance of a problem. And in fact, if you have a higher BMI, the most significant, mathematically, the most significant risk, in scare quotes, that you face is that you'll be told you need a cesarean section. Now, I phrase that really carefully because I'm not saying you need a cesarean section. I'm saying you'll be told you need a cesarean section. That's a subjective recommendation, you know, on the part of it. So you're, you're looking at the medical practitioner there. But the fact is that the reason that you might be told you need a cesarean might not have anything to do with your body or your BMI. And in fact, when we look at data, so one of the, there's two studies that I've been looking at recently on higher BMI, and, and they are studies that looked at, they're both in the UK, and they're studies that looked at women with a higher BMI who were cared for in a midwifery model setting, so in birth centres. And when you look at the outcomes of, of women with a higher BMI who are cared for in a midwifery model, and there's some data from the US on this as well. Actually, they have far better outcomes than women with a high BMI who are cared for in an obstetrically led setting or in hospitals or, you know. And so actually what we have to ask is, is the need, in scare quotes, for a cesarean caused by higher BMI or from other people's responses to your body? You know, so and, and that isn't just necessarily the obstetrician saying, I think you need a cesarean. It's the healthcare providers around you who are, you know, Maybe some of them are fat phobic. It's the, the culture's response. And so we have to look at this. This is why I'm always talking about how we have to look at the wider picture. Well, I don't know if your country is as sort of gone as insane as my country has, probably has. But but I read something again in my email yesterday from the American Medical Association now calling BMI racist. I saw that. Yeah. So BMI is now a racist word. If you want to get rid of using BMI for something, just call it racist and and it will it will go away. I mean, they could have done it and argued for it just like you did. But no. Well, I, mean, just... I think BMI is racist. It's very clear that the data on which B and BMI is another of these 200 year old measures that was created by, you know, middle class middle-aged white men, you know, and... Middle-aged or maybe, maybe more than middle-aged. They were probably... Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's, it's been my imposed. Age. Do you know, I don't know if you know about the history of BMI. No, and I'm sure my listeners don't either, which is well, why you're on the podcast. Let's, let's hear it, because this is, this, is, this, is, this is gold. I just love this. <laughs> so go. So, so the concept of BMI was actually first kind of originated in, in the mind of a Belgian mathematician called Adolf Ketelet. And he, he wasn't at all interested in health. He was interested, you know, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, you know, the picture of yeah, the, oh, sure. uh, the Vitruvian Man. So, so Ketelet was interested in the ideal proportions of the human body 
in an aesthetic sense. He wasn't saying anything about health. That was never his intention. He was he was one of these, you know, sort of scholars of the time. And he came up with this index because he was trying to describe this in, in his art and his work. And it went forgotten about for years until it was picked up many years later by, I think, I think he, an American, I think it's American, called Ansel Keys. And and basically they they then did some research to say, oh, look, here's a good index. And again, this is rooted in insurance companies wanting to charge higher premiums. It's all about risk. The history of this is all about risk. Insurance companies wanted to charge higher premiums for people who had larger bodies because they perceived that they had more health problems. And they, they in some data sets, they do have more health problems, but it doesn't mean it's directly linked to their size. Sometimes there's another issue that's causing in some people. So well, by the way, who's to decide what's ideal? Well, absolutely, actually, ideal. Because, because if you look at Renaissance, if you look at Renaissance art, the, the women in there, they all they were all voluptuous. They were all had higher BMIs than yeah. than what we consider to be ideal now, for sure. Yeah. So, so it abs- when I when I sort of say is racist, I mean it is because it was it was it's all been based on 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 white men. You know, it's also it's classist. It's yeah, it's, it's sexist. You know, I mean, I absolutely take your point that there are one of the problems I have when I come to write my books is that often there are about 15 different perspectives from which you can challenge this one notion of, and I've got to decide sometimes, well, where do I start? Because this is wrong and unevidenced and illogical on so many levels. I spend a lot of time trying to work out where, where do you start with unpacking this? And again, it gets back to being honest about actual risk. And and I think you're right. I think that a lot of the reason that there's this thing about BMI is simply because practitioners are uncomfortable with women who are overweight and men, but we don't deal with men. So we're just, we're not singling out, we're not eliminating men, but we're, we're obstetricians or midwives. So we, you know, we don't deal with that. And we reflect but, the values of the wider culture as well. And we live in a culture that is, you know, is there's a lot of weight stigma and weight bias. Absolutely. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, (laughs) okay? Uh, But it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but it also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, we com- all have and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink L-M-N-T dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. So then you said something which brings me to one of the topics that I wrote down, which was 
you said that they're told because they're overweight, they need, quote unquote, a C-section. So you actually have done a lot of looking into this risk of needing a cesarean. And then like you say, how many are actually really needed? And we've, you know, we've gone through mathematical things about what the WHO says about the C-section rate and how so many C-sections are unnecessary, but no one actually does an unnecessary C-section or never admits to it anyway. So you, you actually wrote, and I, and I, I, Printing out something here. I got to find my glasses. So you said um, another important point is that a cesarean section is not a natural outcome or something mm. that will happen on its own. If we leave things alone and don't intervene. A few years ago, I had a conversation with the brilliant Anne Fry. Absolutely. Yep. And she, and, wonderful. And, yeah. And she said, why is it that so many medical researchers write about the outcome of cesarean section as if it were the natural consequence of a proportion of pregnancies? Mm-hmm. A cesarean section or an induction of or any other medical intervention happens because someone makes a decision that it should happen. It's not a consequence of anything the woman does or doesn't do. And being at risk of needing a cesarean isn't an objective state, it's subjective. And then you go on. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we look at outcomes in research studies, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, cesareans just happen and they are kind of, you know, (laughs) inevitable and they're absolutely not a cesarean section only happens in in most situations. It only happens in the presence of two things. The first is an obstetrician, or perhaps very rarely another person who has the ability to do a cesarean, has the equipment, and says to a woman, I think you need a cesarean. That's the first thing that happens. And then the second thing is the woman consents to that. And and I realize that there are situations where we could we could talk for another hour about consent, but you know, those two things, what needs to happen? So they are the result of a human decision. It's not a natural outcome. And we cannot say, oh, you know, that cesarean was needed and, and that one wasn't. Um, and actually, after I wrote that, <laughs> I, post, I, I, tend to do, I tend to do that. But that's but I understand, yeah, <laughs> well, well, I, I'm and, much and, more dogmatic. Uh, that's just my <laughs> nature. I can say that that one was necessary and that one wasn't necessary. A lot of times, even well, even I mean, even when you just hear the story that the woman tells you, yeah. You're saying, well, you don't know all the facts and stuff like that. Yeah, you know what? You don't necessarily need all the facts to make a determination about something. No, you're right, of course. And many midwives and other birth birth workers do exactly the same thing and say, you know, and we can say this isn't really this isn't really, you know, necessary. But we we have this situation where people aren't thinking about these things. I mean, I mean, I suppose there's a couple of I would love to just read you a text exchange I had. After I published this blog post, which actually was a re- revised blog post, I, I wrote that years ago. So, so a lovely midwife friend of mine who is married to an obstetrician. I, I'm gonna. I haven't got their informed consent, so I won't. I won't name them. No names. It's okay. They'll, <laughs> they'll so, know who they are. <laughs> and this is this is a, this is a, this is a lovely obstetrician. And and my midwife friend texted and said, um, "I've we've just read this, and and I've and I've I've sent this to you know to him to read." And he he was talking about, you are right about, you know, what number of women actually need a cesarean, but how do you know the time of making that decision? How do you know which are the women who do and which who don't? And so this is the reply that I sent for him, which I have to say it worked because he there wasn't a further conversation. So he obviously, obviously went away. And I said, well, the answer is that we don't, you know, and yes, you're right. Sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And what I said is, My point really is that we should be very careful about using the word need because it's really loaded and not nuanced enough. 
we actually can't predict need ahead of time. And it's not always clear afterwards in all cases. And the point I'm making, and this is going back to what I said at the beginning, is, is much deeper. And it's about how the obstetric paradigm is rooted in these enlightenment notions of determinism and certainty, but those don't actually reflect the reality. And they don't reflect the, the world as it actually is and as we currently understand it. We need to pull the obstetric paradigm into you know, the current century, really, in terms of the way it thinks. And sorry, go on. No, no. Keep going. Keep going. Well, I was going to say, I hope I get to meet Bliss, you know, another time. I'm, I'm sorry that Bliss couldn't make it because actually, you know, the thing that midwives know, and I'm sure you get this, is actually you can't be a home birth midwife. You can't be a midwife truly practicing if you're not comfortable with these notions of uncertainty. You know, if I wanted to know whether I was going to sleep on my own bed tonight or not, well, I need a new career. You know, if I needed to know when everyone was going to give birth, home birth midwifery or just, you know, midwifery in a caseload kind of situation, that's not the right career path. And and when you were saying about why is it so difficult to change, I think I think there's lots of answers. And I think one of them is that we are dealing with people that really need that kind of control. And it's it's not not saying they're control freaks. It's actually a lot of the time I think it's about fear. And, And that's one of the reasons that I didn't go the medical path, I went the midwifery path because I could see that actually I wasn't necessarily going to leave obstetric training with the same beliefs that I went in with. Because, and I'm sure you must have covered this many times, what you see as an obstetrician is very, very different from what you see as a home birth midwife. Well, the tr- yeah, train the people that go into obstetrics, I believe even when I did, but certainly even now, they're idealistic, they're optimistic, they They want to help. And then for eight years between medical school and specifically residency in my country, it gets pounded out of them Mm -hmm. and they're exposed to fear. They're taught by maternal fetal medicine specialists who specialize in what, you know, problems. And so they look at things through that prism and that's, that's what they see. You know, when you, when you speak, I, there are things that click in my head and, and I'm a stickler for words and, and and the use of words and and like oxymorons. And you keep talking about the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And then I'm wondering, is that an oxymoron? Why are we calling it the enlightenment? Because a lot of <laughs> unenlightened stuff came out of the enlightenment, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed it did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the the whole idea of needing something is subjective. Mm-hmm. It's not objective. Okay. And, you know, two people could go, I mean, you can't, Again, these experiments can never be done, but if you could take two identical situations and give them to two different people, you probably would get two different paths that they devo- that they traveled to get to the birth of their child. Mm. And the midwifery path is the one that you and I think makes much more sense for most women. And the collaboration between midwives and obstetricians that you have better in your country than we have in our country makes a lot more sense. But because there's so much fear in the medical model and the idea that chaos and uncertainty bothers the, sh- the crap out of them. So instead of just accepting that, they want to control that. And then it gets back to the whole thing about why prevention doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to actually do good <laughs> because yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. all the things in the process of 
trying to control the chaos that they don't like, which is nature's chaos, they create their own chaos. And that's okay for them because it's their chaos and they're comfortable fixing the chaos that they created. Although some of it isn't their chaos. And this is where those those downstream effects come in, you know, because the downsides are, as you say, and I say, we might use different terms, but the focus of the obstetric paradigm is the immediate short-term outcome. And in so many of the studies that I've looked at on different areas, and I'm sure you've looked at in the podcast, in so many of the studies, they're only measuring the immediate outcome. And so- Neonatal death or neonatal morbidity is the only, is the primary outcome in essentially every paper that's written. Yeah. Although sometimes just really short period. I mean, when I was, when I was writing in your own time, I found some data. Now, I will say we don't have enough data on this. I can't make an actual statement on this, but I found data that actually, if you look at deaths in the first year of the baby's life after induction versus going into labor spontaneously, and it's actually it's, it's watchful waiting. So if there's a true, a genuine reason for induction, those women still you know, have an induction, but routine induction versus watchful waiting. If you lengthen the period in which we count, you know, the babies that didn't make it, actually more babies die in that later period whose mother's labours were induced than whose mothers went into spontaneous labour. And so actually... Wait, say say that that again. Say that again, because I want everybody to hear what you just said. Okay. So we know from some of the studies and systematic reviews that compare routine induction of labor with watchful waiting. And watchful waiting means we await spontaneous labor unless there's a genuine problem that warrants induction. So some of the papers that compare these, they they show that there is sometimes a marginal increase in stillbirth after watchful waiting. Now, it is marginal. When you look at the absolute numbers, it's not that big a difference, which is why we talk about absolute risk. And also, there are a number of downsides and long-term medium consequences to induction, which we can come back to that if you would like to. So women have to weigh that up. However, if you actually widen the span of data collection and you look not just at deaths in the first month of life, but you look at neonatal mortality and you look at... So what we look at a longer time span... There are some data and we need better data, but there are some data that shows that actually more babies die in that longer time span of the women whose labours were routinely induced than of the women who had who were in the watchful waiting kind of, you know, group. And so this begs the question, it really need to say, does induction actually, even though the difference is often only marginal, does induction actually reduce neonatal mortality? Or is it just that we are, you know, we're saving a few babies in the early stage, but they or other babies, we're losing them later as a consequence of Yeah, them. well, because the, the parameters they use, like neonatal or perinatal death, are essentially like up to 30 days. Mm-hmm. And, then a, and then after, it's very similar to what they did with the vaccine. You know, oh, within two weeks after, Nothing bad happened, or I mean, not this vaccine, but other vaccines. But, but they don't look what happened a year, two years, three years, ten years down the road, because that's not how. Carditis study that came out today, though. No, I haven't. Okay, I'll, I'll email it to you. Yeah. 
I only I literally saw the abstract and and it was basically showing that after mRNA vaccines, there was a higher, the absolute risk was low. And I think it's important to say that because even if, you know, whatever we're talking about, we need to be clear, the absolute risk was low, but actually there was a higher chance of myocarditis and pericarditis in the groups of people that had the vaccine than in the groups. And they were controlling for COVID infection. Yeah. And, um, and I would tell you that that's, that was obvious to anybody who's been watching over the last two or three years that we don't. You know, then I'm just shocked that a study like that was allowed to come out. Um, well, that was why I mentioned it as I was as well. Um, because of all that, because of all the censorship and stuff that goes on. Well, well okay. It was so, fascinating because, I mean, during, you know, during the pandemic, I was talking to other colleagues who also study risk and statistics. And we were working out, you know, I mean, some of it was quite, I mean, I'll say entertaining, but I want to qualify that sometimes. I find it important to find the entertainment value in some of this because it's a bit like why people that work in the emergency services have a black sense of humour. Because sometimes if you don't laugh at this, you'd never be able to carry on, you know, the illogical nature. Yeah, it's like... It, find, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, it's like when you said the emperor's new clothes sort of thing. It's, yeah. it's like you could see just watching your world, the world, you could see things happening and they're telling you they're not happening. Mm-hmm. And we were analyzing the risks, discovering that in some cases, the risk of for certain colleagues of mine who were younger, you know, the, the risk of dying in a car accident on, on the way to or from the vaccination center, because they live quite a long way away, was higher than the risk of dying from COVID. But we couldn't actually put that out on social media because, of course, that was being very controlled and it wouldn't necessarily have been helpful. I, you know, I don't mean to make light of it. Yeah, I mean. Okay, we we both agree that again you see something and it's something that you've never seen before, and then they're telling you move along. There's nothing to look at here. It's like, yeah. no, that's not the case. Um, this time it was a herd of zebras. It wasn't a herd of horses, right? <laughs> the hoof beats. Okay. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Doctor Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first, you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages, so cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then, of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess if you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah, I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in L.A. before, before they 
fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. A big topic of yours, and, the, and of course, we Bliss and I talk about this a lot, is is the use of Pitocin. Okay, yeah. And in the in the parameters that we talked about, risk or chance and prevention, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit about why is it so commonly used? Why is induction everybody's favorite? I know it gets back maybe to controlling the chaos and stuff like that, but but you said, I think one of your things I read on, maybe it was on Instagram, you said something like, 80, 90% of people are exposed to Pitocin in, in labor or postpartum. So yes. why because is that? Because they're also having it for the birth of the placenta. Right. What's your, why, do you, why do you think they're so dependent on that? Why, and why do you think they don't think there's any downstream consequences to the use of it? Well, because I think, think that the first, my answer to the first part is because it gives a sense of security to those who are fearful of things like, you know, postpartum hemorrhage and, you know, not knowing when the baby's going to come out, you know, it gives a sense of security. And, and that's particularly important in this really litigious society that we work in. But there's also another sort of element that I haven't yet mentioned, which is something called action bias. And across the world, and are you familiar with that term? No. Well, across the world, obstetric professionals are far more likely to get sued for things that they didn't do than things that they did do. Do you, do you have, I know this is a really random question, but do you have any interest in what we call football and what you would call soccer? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I'm a big, I'm a big Ted Lasso fan, but I also, my boys, my boys have become really, they follow the premier league and they've become huge soccer fans. They've got some family that's from Argentina. They were over the moon recently because Argentina won oh, the yeah. World Cup. So okay, fam. So this this will make sense right. to you. So so one so one of my books is called What's Right for Me. So if anyone wants to look into this and get the references, it's in What's Right for Me, which is a book about how it's all about all of these things about how this came about and helping women and families make decisions in a more general. Is this one of your books? Yeah, it is. It is. Oh, it's okay. There. Yeah, okay, it's your book. All right, good. It's my book. Right. So, I've, so if anyone wants the references, they're they're in there. That's the source. So, I found I came across this really interesting study about penalty taking in football. So, as you know, there is sometimes if there's a foul or there's sometimes one team gets to take a penalty where you know one player stands and kicks the ball at the goalkeeper. Just for those who don't who don't you know know soccer rules. And the goalkeeper has to make a decision. And the decision that she has to make is, am I going to stand still or am I going to dive? And if I dive, shall I dive to the left or the right? And most goalkeepers in reality, they dive. And they, you know, they might dive left or right, but most goalkeepers dive. Now, a few years ago, some people did a study and what they looked at is, well, let's look at the evidence on this. What is actually the most effective thing to do if you are a goalkeeper, is it possible to use maths and statistics and science to determine, you know, 
which way do most penalty takers kick, you know? And so they did this study. And what they discovered was actually, if you are a goalkeeper and you are facing a penalty kick, the best thing to do, statistically, we have research that shows that the very best thing to do if you're that goalkeeper is to stand still. You will actually reach more of the goal. You are more likely to save the penalty if you stand still. And so this study was published and it was shared with goalkeepers. And let me just ask you another question. When is the last time you saw a premiership or championship or international goalkeeper standing still in the face of a penalty? Oh, once once in a blue moon, almost never. Right. You don't. And that's what action bias is, because even though goalkeepers know that it's best to stay still, they don't do it. And there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One is they feel better having done something because they don't get criticised for diving if they miss it, because that is the norm. But if they stand still and they miss it, well, why didn't you dive? That'll be the response. And the second thing is, um, and you and some of my you know, other obstetrician friends are the exception to this, but on the whole, nobody wants to be the first to start doing this. And I think that that's really important because we have a standard of care that is offered. You know, we have guidelines and those are often based on the previous guideline and the previous guideline. They're based on expert opinion, not evidence. They're extraordinarily difficult to change. And one of the reasons they're really difficult to change is that nobody wants to be the person that says, let's make the change. The little boy in the story that said, actually, excuse me, but the emperor is naked. Can Nobody wants to stand up and say that. And if they do, they're often beaten down by those around them and they leave the system and they're ostracized and they have to make friends with all the midwives. <laughs> Who are you talking about, right? No, <laughs> I'm talking about so many people, actually. I'm talking about lots of there's, Yeah, lots there's, of there's quite a few, right. Right, present company included. But, but yes, I think that's a great analogy. I think mm. that's great. It's very difficult to break away from the crowd. It's very difficult. And... In praise of doctors who do, because often when they do, as you said, Monday morning, the chairman comes in and calls them in the office and says, the nurses told me that you did this. Why did you do this? And that sort of thing. And it's like, well, she's my patient and this is what she wanted. Well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> you it's know? not about her. Yeah, it's not. It's not about her. <laughs> yeah. So why? So again, so you're saying that the use of Pitocin is it's the long habit of not thinking something wrong, making it seem right. Is that sort of what we're talking about here? And and then what do you see as the downsides? Because you've written a whole book on this. So what do you see as the downsides of the use of Pitocin? Uh, because you say it's the same molecule as oxytocin. Kirsten of Moberg says that. She, she's a physiologist. I mean, I, I was really sharing a research of people like Kirsten of Moberg and Sarah Buckley, who've done some fabulous work in this area. And, and that's that's on my website if anybody would like to, to find those studies. And what Shiston says is that, you know, it is the same. What people talk about synthetic oxytocin, and it is synthetic in a sense, but what we actually need to really talk about, to, because, again, I want to be clear about some of these things so that we can understand them better. We need to talk about the difference between endogenous oxytocin, which is what our own bodies make in different situations, and then exogenous oxytocin, which is the same molecule, but it's given to us in a drip. Sometimes it comes in other forms, but in labor, it's given in an intravenous drip. Do you call that something different? Do you know what I mean by No, it? that's that's what it's called. Okay. okay. That's cool. Um it's so like it's, it's like it's like table. 
Okay. How, how do you say table? Table. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's from that's from Love Actually. It's a cute it's a cute scene in Love Actually. But aluminium, you don't say that right. At no, all. we you don't say aluminium, and, and we don't say bottle. We don't say bottle. We say bottle Water but, as well. Water. Anyway, let's. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can spend the rest of the evening doing this. So, so the, there is there are a number of significant differences in what oxytocin does to the body and to the woman's body and also to the baby, depending on whether it is endogenous and generated from within the woman's own body or whether it's given in an you know, exogenous by drip. And, and basically, these fab researches are showing is that some of the benefits that we receive when we're secreting our own oxytocin are not experienced when it's being given to us in a drip. But these are not things that are being measured by the short-term research that's carried out by the obstetric paradigm, because what they're measuring is, are you bleeding at birth? Are you giving birth within a time frame which we perceive is acceptable because we'd like to get home for our dinner? They're not looking at, you know, firstly, there are, of course, actual side effects to lots of these things. But also many of these interventions lead to more interventions. So with we call it syntocinon, you call it pitocin, um, you know, giving, giving syntocinon often leads to more intervention. It causes the sensations of labor to be stronger, experienced as more painful. So women are far more likely to then say, I really need an epidural. I didn't want it, but actually I've changed my mind. This is one of the significant issues that arises with induction is that it leads to a cascade of intervention. Um, you know, some of these things can lead to the fact that we're just telling women, well, you need this drug. You know, you might even the thought ahead of time, you might need this. It reduces women's confidence, you know. And then, I mean, I know you asked about Pitocin, but I think there's another couple of things I just want to mention is some, some kinds of prophylaxis. So antibiotics for group B strep, for example, they have these significant wider implications, like, you know, the effect on antibiotic resistance. And we don't know that that's the case with Pitocin. But that's partly because we haven't looked. We, we haven't looked enough at what, what giving Pitocin to, you know, really, really large numbers of women, actually what effect that has. And not just effects on their physical well-being, but on their physical well-being in the medium and long term and on their bonding with the baby. Because, as I'm sure you know, Michelle O'Don called oxytocin the hormone of love. And it's involved you know in in breastfeeding in bonding in making forming relationships with our babies and and the rest of our family and a model that only looks at the short-term physical outcomes just doesn't even consider all of those effects no and, and the way they dose it too is giving you a continuous infusion at levels that get sometimes really really high you know, in our own bodies, it's pulsatile. It's not yeah. continuous. And, and you know, it, the synthetic, according to the woman that you quoted, I can't, I don't know her name, but you quoted her name. It doesn't cross, the, you know, the exogenous form doesn't cross your blood brain barrier. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you don't get, you don't get the feeling. I mean, labor is a complex symphony of processes that are going on. And every time you step in and mess with one of them, it's like taking the violin or the oboe out of the, out of the equation. 
And it doesn't sound quite right. It doesn't seem quite right. And again, our medical friends are not looking at that. They're looking at the short-term outcome that best suits the model of care by which they practice. And and whether it's getting home for dinner, which is, you know, you know, that's an interesting thing too. I could go off on a tangent on that. They thought they'd get rid of that incentive by having what are called laborists in my country and in your country. And it turns out that that it didn't do anything to change or lower the intervention rates. All it did was it just reflected the intervention rate of the person who was on on call for that 12 hours. And so didn't change anything. But again, that's that's what we would call stage one thinking, where yeah. you want to do something because it might do good without ever looking at the long-term consequences and asking your question, does it actually do good? And that's a question that a lot of our colleagues in not just medicine, politics, economics, energy, they all they don't look at the consequences of what they're saying. It's like, the, oh, we're going to have all electric cars in California by 2035. Okay, where are you going to charge them? Where you, and also they're going to break the car parks because they're heavier. Yeah, I, I saw that. There was something in back east in some, I think it was Manhattan, that a car park collapsed. And and But not only that, I mean, where are you going to get the lithium and the cobalt and all the things you're going to do? And, and, and then California already has brownouts the way it is right now. Imagine everybody plugging their cars in. And what if you have to drive more than, you know, two hours? You're going to stop and then charge your car and miss, you know, your midwife and you live in a rural area. I mean... There's no thought process whatsoever. Okay. Well, often there's no thinking. Well, yeah. You. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So vitamin K. Okay. Another one of your favorite topics. It is. You wrote a whole book on this one too. <laughs> so give me, we've talked about it. You list risk vitamin K dependent bleeding as about one in 11,000. I quote six per hundred thousand, which is like one in 16,000, which is essentially the same number. Well, it's just um, a bit what your data set, but absolutely it's low. Whatever it is. It's three- low. Right. High income countries it is very low. Yes. Okay. Yet we have states in our country that, that make it law that they have, uh, they have uh, to get yeah. vitamin K. Yeah. So want to talk about that. I'll just, I want to, I don't want to pigeonhole you here. I want you to just talk about <laughs> vitamin about K. Everything I've written about. Okay. We could. No, yeah. You got like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, so with, I'll be, I'll be quick. So with so many of these, these examples, so vitamin K is a prophylactic or preventative intervention. And with so many of these, the, the, the overall story is the same. We, we identify a problem, you know, so in this case, it used to be called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn in my day, probably yours. And it's now called vitamin K deficiency bleeding, which is fascinating because it, the way the name arose, maybe you have to talk about that another day, but, you know, you're basically creating the need for the intervention in the way that you name the problem. Um, no, no, you you don't have to put that off. That that's a huge part of the whole the whole the whole problem. It's well, it, I guess I've it, made it's that. Essentially, point, yeah. It's essentially a dog chasing its tail. Yeah, yeah. It's you know we have a problem, so we'll solve the problem. We'll call it this, and we'll have more problems, and we'll call it this, and we'll and and it just around and around it goes. But go ahead, go ahead. So so we we had a problem. Now that problem was serious for the babies, for the small number of babies that get that. This is a serious and occasionally fatal illness. And I absolutely don't want to downplay that. And that's what's important because, you know, these are not, you know, insignificant problems. It's just that they are rare problems. And so what happens is, and I think it was about the 1940s, somebody does research and says, oh, the reason that some of these these babies are dying is they, they could be saved by vitamin K. Now, I'm actually, I deliberately didn't say they lack vitamin K because I don't know that that's the problem. Because actually, 
all babies are born with lower levels of vitamin K relative to adults. But all babies are born with larger heads proportional to their bodies relative to adults. And we don't say that that's pathological. Nobody oh, seems yeah, to... You know what? Some do, actually. Oh. Your, baby, your baby's head's bigger than its abdomen. You need a C-section. Oh, OK. Oh, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I guess I was talking about after the baby's born. We don't say that's pathological. I, OK, thank you. I'll, I'll clarify that more in the future. Okay. I like it, as you know. So babies have low levels of vitamin K relative to adult levels. There are low levels of vitamin K in breast milk. So here's the question that I asked. Didn't, didn't seem to have like occurred to many people. And this was about 20 years ago. Is there a reason for that? Is there maybe a reason that baby's blood needs to be perhaps a little bit slippier? Because, you know, that's what we're actually talking about. And less likely to clot than adult's blood. Well, I, I cannot, I'm about to say is pure speculation and not based on evidence because we haven't looked for the evidence. But perhaps the fact that the baby's blood has to go all the way down the cord, round the placenta and back, Maybe that's a good reason for it to need to be just slightly, you know, I don't know a better word than slippier. I love um, that word. Yeah. <laughs> and then stem cells. You know, we, we know that babies have all these millions of lovely stem cells. You know, maybe actually lowered levels of vitamin K benefits the vast majority of babies. But I absolutely acknowledge for some babies, some babies develop a, a clotting and then bleeding disorder, which can be fatal. and vitamin K can treat that. But rather than saying, well, this is an interesting situation. Let's look into this more deeply. Let's look at, for instance, whether there is a pathological condition that causes clotting in some babies that is actually rectified by vitamin K as a treatment. Let's look at whether we can determine what that is and, you know, and, and figure out who those tiny proportion of babies are. But instead of that, because it was determined that giving vitamin K to every baby would prevent the, the very few from getting this problem, was offered and now, as you say, in some states in the US now mandated that all babies have this. But again, there's been very little work. There's been no randomized control trial on vitamin K. It's an intervention that was almost sort of grandfathered in because it came in before the era of evidence-based practice that I talked about in the beginning of the interview. And it's just carried on. And the reality is, it doesn't matter how much money somebody would put my way, I could not run a randomized control trial on vitamin K now because it would be considered unethical to remove that from a, a proportion of babies. And in fact, the other problem is that because it is so rare, we would need so many baby. It would just not be possible. But you, so notice, you notice how the solution for these problems always involves either an intervention or something that generates revenue. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just want to. I just want to make very clear that nobody makes money if you don't give vitamin K. Nobody makes money if you don't give Rogam. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then and then you're right. They set up a system that says now because we've been doing it this way for so long. To not give Rogam to somebody or to not give vitamin K to somebody uh, violates, you know, IRB rules and, and you'll never get it past human subjects and it's unethical. And yeah. and it's a catch-22. You can't you can't prove you can't prove it. Yeah. You no, know, you can't prove a counterfactual. You just you, they won't it won't doesn't happen. No. I mean, to put this into context, one of the examples that, again, I, I use with my research students is that if we mandated that every adult 
had to take, I'm trying to make what you call it, Tylenol, had to take two Tylenol every morning or paracetamol for listeners in the UK. If we mandated that every adult was, was compelled to take, you know, a gram of this every morning when they got up, we would absolutely, on a population basis, we would reduce the number of sick days by probably some margin because, you know, the people that have hangovers, the, those that wake up with headaches, you know, whatever, we would, we would have a population effect on this. But nobody's suggesting that we do that. And, and I think this is sometimes, I mean, I do, I do make up really crazy analogies. I'm really aware of that. But sometimes I think that sort of thing's really important to put into perspective what we're actually doing and what is being recommended. You know, when you when you distill it down and say, what are we doing? We're giving this to all babies because it does work, even though only one in 11,000 babies actually would have the problem. We just need to look at these questions in different ways and from different angles. You know, it's interesting that you would use the Tylenol example because my friend Jen Margulis just has an article that just came out about how Tylenol can cause their... Again, this is controversial, but how Tylenol can cause autism and, and giving it in children and, and newborns. And you should never, ever do that. So I wouldn't recommend adults do it either. <laughs> well, I'm not aware of that. What I am aware of is another colleague of mine a few years ago, and again, there's not much on this, looked at how taking it in labor, because I don't know about there, but over here, if women who are planning a hospital birth, they phone the unit and say, I'm in early labor, they're often told to do things like have a couple of paracetamol and take a bath you know, to, to get them through sort of early labour. And and actually, there's some, some, some I don't want to call it data because I don't think it was, but actually that paracetamol can interfere with prostaglandins and potentially leads to much longer prodromal labour. And again, we've got no evidence on this. There's no study on this. I can't tell you, oh, this is definitely the case. I can just say, this is what some midwives are talking about. I don't know whether you're familiar with that one. No, I am not. But I... I have a special interest in this because good friends with this friend of mine, this author, and she's written a book called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan and the Business of a Baby and stuff like that. And and uh, there's there's a case going on right now uh, regarding Johnson & Johnson, the maker of Tylenol in our country. I guess it probably makes paracetamol in your country too. And I would just tell our listeners that when you're pregnant or for your newborn, do not be, just don't, don't take Tylenol. I, we went, we got off topic here, but because you mentioned Tylenol as your example, I, I can't not say something that, that is so, to me, is so important. And to give Tylenol to women in labor to tell them, you know, to take it easy and relax. Is that what you just said in England, they're telling them to do that? Oh, it's, it's long been a recommendation that when, when women phone the hospital and say, I'm in early labor, if they're not quite ready to come in, the advice will usually be take a couple of Tylenol, paracetamol, you know, have a bath, just relax, and then let us know when you're ready to come in. So now we have a reason why the world is getting dumber, because everybody's taking time <laughs> while they're pregnant. There are probably lots of reasons. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Okay, so ultimately, the thing about vitamin K, and I agree with you about the theory of, very importantly, if nature isn't stupid, and if the, and if babies, I don't know about other mammals, but I'm assuming it's the same thing. If they're born vitamin K deficient, maybe there's a reason for that. And the fact that we're messing with Mother Nature in a recent podcast, I quoted a guy from several years ago that I heard in a debate say, say, say something as dumb as nature is a bad obstetrician and fabulous midwife. Uh, yeah, that's a good corollary because <laughs> no, I, I think that's a, that's I, a quote I, heard. I think it's a compliment to nature that it's a bad obstetrician. Mm -hmm. And this is another example is why are we always trying to mess with mother nature? Mm -hmm. 
for something that happens one in a very small number, one in 10,000, one in 16, 11,000, whatever times. I mean, that, by the way, ultimately, all these things that we've talked about boils down to informed decision-making. And ultimately, these decisions should be made by the informed pregnant woman and her family, not by the institution, not by local governments or national governments, that sort of thing, or the World Health Organization for that matter. Mm -hmm. Wow, we've covered a lot. I have one more question that I'd like you maybe if you want to talk about it a little bit, and that's your uh, Albany Midwife Study book and, and that whole thing about the, the book Closure. That's not my book. That's the book that I two mean, of my colleagues wrote. The Closure book um, is not your book, but you but you did a post on it and I read it and I was really intrigued by it. And I was curious if you want to tell our listeners, my listeners probably know nothing about this. Okay. But if you could tell the story, because it's a classic story of when something's working, you have to break it. Okay. So so it's, I will just begin by saying, I will share what I know. It's not my story. It's the book Closure was written by two friends and mine, um, Becky Reed, who was one of the Albany midwives, and Nadine Edwards. Um, and we'll link it. We'll link it in the show notes. Okay, great. And and it's based on a midwifery practice that was called the Albany Midwifery Practice. And and this was a midwifery practice in London that was had fabulous outcomes. And there are there is a there is a blog post. I mean, there's a blog post on my website. So if you just put Albany, which is same as in New York, same spelling, into my into the search box, people can find that research study. So there was a research study, it had fabulous outcomes. The women loved it. It was great for the midwives. What was really important is that they had particularly good outcomes relative to what was happening in the rest of the NHS for black and brown women. You know, we know that in the US and in the UK, black and brown women are far more likely to have problems, to experience, you know, to experience all sorts of things and their babies. And so uh, they had fantastic outcomes. It was closed down. There was a long process. It was in the book. Um, and, and that's what they wrote about how the model was closed down. And it happens so often. So it's fabulous that the book is there for those that want to read the story. And if if, if you have a take on that, do you, do you know why it was closed down? Or are we just speculating that, that it was closed because it, obviously they had great outcomes and the women loved it. So the only reason I could think that, again, you don't need evidence to think that why it was closed down was maybe it was competing with somebody or making somebody look bad. I mean, actually, this, this is where the story is, com the book is about that story. They they needed to write a long book to tell that story because it was how, it was, it was how things, lots of things happened. There was a very long kind of, but Becky, you know, was, that ended up being called in front of the professional body. It was also, I mean, there, there's a whole webpage on this Facebook page, Justice for Midwife Becky Reed. So the, the book tells the story. I actually don't want to go, I don't think I can eloquently summarize a story that affected the lives of so many people. And I kind of didn't come prepared to do that. So I don't know. And, and that, that's fine. And I won't, didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just thought I read that blog yesterday, your blog, mm -hmm. and it just touched me in such a way that I didn't, I just wanted to bring it up so that if anybody's listening to the podcast, they can, they can look, they can either read your blog or certainly go and purchase the book closure. Yeah. I am going to. Because that kind of history, that that's history to me. That's modern history, but it's still history nonetheless. It's not 200-year-old Enlightenment, you know, middle-aged white man history, but it's still history nonetheless. And it explains, I mean, it's probably repeated over and over again. People, are for, people who are doing good work are forced out. 
And that's exactly why it's needed. And that's exactly why Becky and Nadine wrote it, because it tells that story. And hopefully by looking at those stories and looking at, it's only the detail that, you know, I, I don't feel like I can summarize, but by telling those stories, we can hopefully learn from that and see, you know, what could be done to change these sorts of situations in the future. As you know, midwifery practices are shut down all over. Obstetricians who step outside the lines are, are ostracized, are, you know, are, are reported to their professional body. We, you know, we have a whole load of, you know, the independent midwives in the UK who've stopped practicing. And the medical associations here in, in, in the United States and the American College of OBGYN, they lobby state legislatures to ban midwives from doing things that they don't want to do. Like in California, up until 2014, midwives could do breaches. They could do twins. They had to have physician supervision, but they gave that up. Um, they gave all that up so they could practice independently. But then, but, but breach delivery, twin delivery, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of world literature that supports vaginal choices there. And if the medical community isn't offering it, you know, that's their choice. But why do they then lobby state legislatures to, to prevent someone else who wants to do it from doing something that is evidence-based? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the $10 million question. Yeah. Is why that is. Uh, is there something else that you would like to talk in the, in the last few minutes about the whole theme of chance and pre- over prevention or over prophylaxis uh, that you that you would like to say? I'll tell you what I would like to say is that I think that there are even though we're talking in a in a kind of a general sense, I think that there are some things that that women and families who are listening, there are some things that you can do to equip yourself better when you are in this situation. And so, yes, some of that, some, some of that is in my books. I also, I'd love to point people to a blog post on my website, which is called Five Questions to Ask If You're Offered Induction of Labour. Um, because I think, so if I can just give you a really quick summary of that, because I think I'd like to end on a positive note and say, you know, there are, th- one of the reasons I've done what I've done in my career is to get the evidence into the hands of those making the decisions. And, you know, my whole kind of, my whole thing is to take the evidence and the stats that are complex. And then I talk about them in terms of football, magic tricks, you know, sweets or, you know, candy, whatever, because people need that evidence. So some of the key things are you should, you know, if you're offered an intervention, ask why, you know, why is this being offered to me? You know, is this an individualized recommendation or is this recommended for everyone or for everyone in a particular group? And if the answer is, well, we're offering you this because you older than average, because you have a higher BMI, because you had IVF, you know, one of those risk factors, that's when you should maybe say, well, let me go and let me go and look at this. If people, if somebody says to you, well, you're twice as likely to have this, or you're twice as like your baby's twice as likely to die. Ask them for the absolute risk, you know, and and also ask them for the evidence. If somebody is telling you something, say, that's very interesting. I would really like to have a look at that before I make my decision. Could you please tell me the where to where I can find the evidence on that? If the evidence is something like the ARRIVE trial or historically the Canadian breach trial, go and have a look at the websites of people. I mean, I'm one of them with I've actually talked about both of those who have actually looked at the evidence and can explain you know why i mean the arrive trial is not a good basis for making decisions about induction and then i think one of the really important things is it's not just about ask, asking the questions 
listen to the answers and listen to what somebody is saying to you because maybe you don't have the right care provider or you know it's always really important i think to to listen to what people are saying and if somebody glosses over and says oh we won't worry about that now we'll worry about that in labor you know those are kind of red flags so i think my kind of like take home message is always about asking us go and inform yourself about these issues and then know what questions you need to ask you know even if you know even if you've read my book or somebody's book and you know what the answer is ask the question anyway because actually it's important that you know what the care provider in front of you is going to tell you that the answer is it can tell you so much you're a wise woman Dr. Sarah Wickham, you're very wise. And I feel like if I was there, we should now be going out to a pub. And we absolutely the solstice. I'm right near the stone circles. Um, so yeah, we should absolutely Oh my God, it is solstice today. Oh my gosh, right. And I'm I'm really close to Avebury. So actually we shouldn't go to the pub tonight because everyone else in England is in Wiltshire tonight. We should sit in the garden and have have a glass of wine instead. That's what I'm gonna do. That would be lovely. And I would just I want to say the last thing I want to say to you is that. You have changed the life of so many people for the better, and you keep doing what you're doing. Okay. And because, listen, we can't we can't touch everybody, but every family that we touch changes the lives of those members of that family, and there's a ripple effect. And just as there's ripple effects downstream of interventions that aren't necessary, there's also ripple effects um, upstream for the for the next generation of people, and we and we can try to do better. In our own little world. And you are doing that with, you know, your wisdom, your wit, and your prolific writing. So I would just tell my listeners to, you know, go to Amazon, look at the list of books that she has on there, go to her website. Your website is Sarah Ellis? It's sarahwickham.com and there's no H on the Sarah. Right. And Wickham is W-I-C-K-H-A. That's right. S-A-R-A-W-I-C-K-H-A-M.com. And I'm on Instagram as Dr. Sarah Wickham. So D-R- S-A-R-A-W-I-C-K-H-A-M. And we're going to put all that in the show notes. But there's a lot of wisdom to be had here. And if you know somebody who's pregnant or going to get pregnant and they're in the medical model, uh, please refer them to this podcast or to to Sarah's website for some, just some wise, wise information. I just, yeah, I'm blown away. I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to speak with you. Bliss is going to be jealous beyond belief that that she wasn't here. I know she feels bad, but uh, sometimes, you know, that is the question. Wi-Fi isn't good for us being bombarded in Wi-Fi all the time. Can't get on Wi-Fi. Right. So in other words, in some ways, Bliss is blessed that she's in a pocket where there's no Wi-Fi. So that's (laughs) good. (laughs) All right. So Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to talk to you. Wow. I really enjoyed that. She's an amazing person. And I'm so glad she's in the world and that she thinks like we do. Um, She's written so many books. Uh, She's so smart. She's so witty. And she puts it all together in a a way that makes it really, for lack of a better word, edible to a non-medical person. I think that one of the things that she loves about writing her books is that she takes stuff that could be complicated and makes it simple. And you know, one of our themes on our podcast has been how the medical model complicates the simple. Yeah. Well, Sarah Wickham simplifies the complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. It was Wait. a privilege to talking to her. And you and I are going to fly at some point. We're going to fly to her hometown 
and we are, uh, which is near Avesbury, and there's a circle of stones there, and we're going to have tea or whiskey mm. Or, mm. or wine out by the circle of stones. Because today, when we talked, was the uh, summer solstice. Yes. So very powerful day. Yes. Well, I love that plan. I'm glad you made it without me, and I can't wait to do it. <laughs> and, and and I missed you, but she also acknowledged missing you. Oh, she's looking forward nice. to talking to you. So that's so nice. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have her back again when I can be present. But I love that you know we had a guest planned, and you could move forward. And I knew that you would have an amazing chat with her. And I'm just so honored to be a part, even if it's just a tiny, tiny bit. So thanks for everyone for being, uh, you know, our listeners and devouring the back podcast that they hadn't heard before and sharing with us their triumphant birth stories. And, you know, it's just, it's an honor for us every, every week and every day to be part of this community. And, um, until next time. So before you say the famous last two words, I just want to say that a belated good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to all of you. Thank you for being our fellow travelers. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 